Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up, we've got a full show for you today. Few earnings calls, one from Walmart, and we're really excited to talk about one from Grocery Outlet, only their second ever earnings call after going public earlier this year. We've got an interview guest as well, Sean Turner. He's the co-founder and CTO of Swiftly. We're going to talk about grocery tech, especially as it pertains to small or mid-size grocery chains. He's also going to talk about some technology that he's looking ahead to and how retailers can better implement that technology to serve their customers' needs. We'll also briefly touch on JCPenney's earnings call. Layton's got a story about a retailer he visited when he visited the upper Midwest. A reminder that you can like us or rate us however you find us, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, any other podcast delivery service. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcast. So again, we begin today's show as we're contractually obligated to with Walmart earnings. We are the Retail Focus Podcast, and each time Walmart releases earnings, we do talk about that. Now, one of the things I did want to mention, they released their quarterly earnings on Thursday morning. We will be talking a little bit about the numbers when it comes to Walmart because we've talked about so many of their initiatives throughout the course of the last several episodes. No need to really dig in deep to some of the Q&A materials on the call because a lot of it was financially focused. A lot of it was e-commerce focused. And also, there's no need for us to introduce the retailer because Walmart needs no introduction. Now, the storyline from this call was the continued increase of e-commerce and digital grocery sales in particular, while brick-and-mortar sales remain robust and ever-increasing. Basically, to put it bluntly, Walmart is killing it, and they have been for some time now. Walmart, Trent, has been doing an excellent job. And if you look through the call notes, the largest brick-and-mortar retailer in the U.S. posted worldwide revenue numbers that were up 2.5% year-over-year, 3.3% up when you factor in currency impacts. Excellent numbers from a very large retailer who, by the way, has been struggling a little bit internationally of late. They saw some softness in the U.K., but did mention strength in Mexico and China as well, as strength finally coming from the Flipkart acquisition, which they've been taking charges for over the last few quarters. However, we do usually focus on the U.S. sales figures. This is the most important part of the Walmart business as of late, and things were strong once again domestically for the Bentonville, Arkansas-based company. They posted Walmart comp sales that were up by 3.2%, which of course exceeds inflation numbers currently that Those numbers actually did exclude their fuel sales as they usually would. This is even more impressive when you consider the sales were up 3.4% in fiscal 2019 over fiscal 2018, meaning that their comps on a two-year stack were an increase of a mind-blowing 6.6%. And again, some might be saying, well, other retailers have been seeing better same-store sales increases, yes, but with a retailer as huge as Walmart, it is difficult to move the needle that much on comps and do so, by the way, consistently. So beating inflation by this much is truly remarkable for them, and this is in our opinion, but in a lot of opinions out there, and that's why you see, Trent, 
the stock price hitting an all-time high this Thursday as they reported their official press release. The 3.2% reflects impacts from fuel having been removed. Fuel sales were actually up year over year. So including fuel, comps would have been around 3.6% in the positive direction. And talking about comps from a deeper perspective, they are fueled by a slight increase in both transactions and ticket size. By the way, they changed their transactions metric to include both online and in-store transactions and adjusted comps from last year to reflect this. In any case, their number of transactions increased 1.3%. However, the number we found most notable was the increase in ticket size, which was up 1.9% across e-commerce and brick-and-mortar platforms. And you look, Trent, that means that they are having more customers, but the customers that they are having are usually customers that have already been shopping at Walmart, of course, and they're just buying more product. They're sourcing the right product at the right time. And I think grocery, as we'll talk about, is a huge play in that. Knowing that prices on most consumer staples at Walmart have not increased, this hits on that one main point. People are simply purchasing more each time they go in-store or walmart.com, seeing how competitive Walmart is on pricing for their most used goods. Now, there could, of course, be macroeconomic factors driving this increase. And if you look, it could be their customer base has more discretionary income. But the fact remains that Walmart has positioned themselves in such a way to take advantage of this movement. And one helpful part of their release was the fact that Walmart breaks down the e-commerce impact on U.S. comp sales. A lot of times we'll see retailers just kind of lump in e-commerce along with the rest of their comp sales on an earnings call. Doesn't give us much color, but this does in this circumstance. And coming into the call really over the past 12 months, an argument that we've kind of seen pop up in some circles of retail media, and we don't necessarily agree with this to be sure, is in the past that e-commerce sales going up by leaps and bounds have possibly eaten away at brick and mortar sales for Walmart. And of course, this has far reaching impacts because you're looking at these enormous monoliths of stores where you're trying to keep that revenue per square foot up. But Walmart's numbers show this not to be the case. So 170 basis point positive impact on comp sales positioned by e-commerce increases. And that's a pretty big number. But Keep in mind, that's only part of the same store sales increase story. This means that while e-commerce is certainly a big part of those 3.2% comp increases that we're seeing in the U.S. division, it's certainly not hindering brick-and-mortar sales on its own. In fact, this impact from Walmart not only includes just the raw sales, the dollars from the e-commerce platform, but also the positive impact across the chain of various buy online pickup and store options that Walmart has, whether it's driving up to pick up groceries or something along those lines, or going in store to pick up those items, allowing for those crossover sales that we discuss about with so many retailers. And this is also very, very different from the Walmart we were seeing just four to five years ago, where both Leighton and I complaining time and time again about their online pickup systems being antiquated about them, not really building into some of those crossover sales. But again, when we talk about a 170 point increase or a basis point positive impact on those comp sales, we're talking about not only the dollars, but also the positive impacts and some of that consumer retention that Walmart is seeing from these different mechanisms that they're using. Despite likely having internal metrics on this front, Walmart 
doesn't really break down the cross-benefit publicly, so we always kind of lack info on that on the call, but they do give us far more info than a lot of retailers do, and it is built into that, again, BPS impact model. Those e-commerce sales, by the way, were up 41% in the U.S. alone, driven primarily by advancements in digital grocery, and that's actually something that Sean Turner will reference in our interview with him momentarily. Now, As we mentioned in the past, a lot of analysts are saying, well, it should be even more. It should be 50 or 60 percent. Seeing the 41 percent increase, though, that tells you, of course, things are moving in the correct direction. And again, the year over year increases when you stack them up are nearing triple digits, which is amazing for Walmart. Finally, as far as Walmart's U.S. performance is concerned, they showcased increased operating income from the division, the U.S. division as a whole. Operating income was $4.2 billion, up from around $3.9 billion a year ago, or if you'd like a percentage there, up 6.1%. As a percentage of sales, operating income was an even 5%. Now, one of the things that we can extrapolate from this is the fact that digital is no longer eroding profitability to maybe the same extent it was said to earlier this year as we see this operating income rise as a percentage of sales. And what we recall a series of articles and reports from earlier this year documenting that internal strife at Walmart. And a large driver of this was supposedly, at least, losses in Mark Lohr's e-commerce division as the company threw money at a number of investments. From these numbers, though, on this call, we can see that, of course, as we mentioned, e-commerce was up 41%, delivered that 170 basis point impact on comps, and that brick-and-mortar comps increased as well. Meanwhile, operating income jumped 6.1% or more even than comps did, meaning that Walmart, at least in this quarter, found a way to squeeze increased profitability from their sales overall, and at least e-commerce doesn't appear to be hindering that overall operating income. That's not net income, mind you, but operating income to the same extent that it was suggested in some of these articles that came out earlier this year. So whether they're finding ways to be more efficient on the e-commerce front, whether some of those initiatives are finally maturing, it's kind of up to you as far as which direction you think they're headed. But one thing is for sure that operating income is growing as a percentage of sales at the same time e-commerce sales growing by leaps and bounds. And like I mentioned earlier or alluded to, something to be said for scale. Walmart's always had that on the brick and mortar front, but being able to scale up those technological advances at the rate they are doing seems to be helping their profitability as well. In fact, to this point, they were able to roll out their new delivery unlimited subscription platform to over 1,400 stores in the U.S. upon their announcement of that earlier this year. They also made a point on this call to mention their in-home delivery launch in three cities during the quarter and touches over 1 million consumers. So while we're talking about e-commerce and digital, those are kind of the next big things for Walmart, particularly that in-home delivery launch. And we would expect to see probably more expansion of those programs as Walmart continues into the 2020 year. There was a lot of positive trend that you covered. I'm going to turn the dial a little bit to the negative side. If there is one negative during the call, it comes from Sam's Club, which of course, as our listeners may know, that I worked at for close to a decade in total, whose comps were disappointing to say the least. And Sam's Club has had a bit of an up and down track record over the last decade, but an argument could be made that they were going against strong comps 
most recently. But even so, a comp sales increase this quarter of 0.6% isn't likely what executives had envisioned or at the very least hoped for. So we mentioned their strong comps last year, excluding fuel, came in at 3.2%, which is much better than their prior years. Although somewhat an average number for Walmart as a whole, e-commerce sales at Sam's Club did increase 32%. They've been really focused on driving both e-commerce sales and the functionality between online and in-store pickup. A solid number, but still lagging overall. Their general merchandise counterpart there at Walmart is doing much, much better in terms of e-commerce output. But one major story regarding Sam's Club in the release was the impact of tobacco sales on comps. They said that tobacco sales, or the decline thereof, had a negative 350 basis point impact on comps, which, by the way, is massive. And here, Trent, you have a company which really was putting out a ton of tobacco products over the last 3.5 decades, basically since they've existed in the market. And so this is a company that would cater often to and and be very bullish about their convenience store business. Convenience stores would buy a ton of paper products. Of course, you have Gatorade in there as well, but also tobacco products. Tobacco products oftentimes made up 40% of the revenue that convenience stores were buying from Sam's Club on an annualized basis. They would be using the Sam's Club rewards dollars from their credit cards, and those would be racking up because they at one time did not even have a cap on tobacco sales. So customers would be buying six figures worth of tobacco products per year. But you see the overall decline trend has to do with, of course, the decline in overall demand for tobacco products. So this is going to trickle down to Sam's Club. And this is one of the reasons why they don't like to talk about tobacco sales a whole lot, I think, in their earnings releases anymore. They're trying to be focused away from that, more focused on the e-commerce initiatives, more focused on fresh and grocery. And I think that's a smart move for Sam's Club. However, I don't think they're going to be taking tobacco off the shelves like you saw at CVS Health. And so you look at all of these things, what is it going to mean for Sam's Club going forward? It's simply going to mean they're going to have to push those other categories. They're going to have to continue to push the other areas in the store in order to make up for that lost revenue. One last thing, Trent, I will say about Sam's Club, along with this press release, this earnings call from Walmart, some change up is happening in the managerial roles over at Sam's Club, which is pretty much commonplace. This is a company I've, of course, I said I, I worked in, but I had also kept tabs on after I left the company because it's just such a fascinating company and how their management structure has been over the years. Typically, Trent, if you're a CEO of Sam's Club, you're going to move in the upward direction thereafter. There's only been a couple instances in the history of Sam's Club where somebody has really either dropped off in terms of exiting the company with really no reason behind it, or maybe dropped off into another area of Walmart Incorporated that wasn't really seen as a promotion. But most recently, John Ferner, who's been in the position for a couple years now as CEO, actually just got another promotion to be CEO of Walmart US effective November 1st. And then you look, Trent, he's been serving again as CEO since 2017. So again, you have a long list of former Sam's Club CEOs that have made their way up either within Walmart US or another company. Take Brian Cornell, for example. He's the CEO of Target. He was at one time the CEO of Sam's Club, did an amazing job. Take, for instance, the current CEO of Walmart Incorporated, Doug McMillan, 
former Sam's Club CEO. So this is going to be an amazing new position for their new Sam's Club CEO. And her name is going to be Catherine McLay. She goes by Kath. She takes over after being with the company just four years in multiple roles. Most recently, Trent, vice president, executive vice president of Walmart U.S. neighborhood market. So she brings in a lot of experience from the grocery space. She brings in a lot of experience from digital super curious as to what she's going to be able to provide Sam's Club in the future. She does have a big role to fill. And I mean this in in the best way possible because Sam's Club, like I said, is volatile and it's going through some changes, like we said, with tobacco products, but just a whole reorganization. Last year, we covered the closing of around 80 or 90 Sam's Clubs that some were going to be transitioned to fulfillment centers. Some were just closing permanently. So their store count is now just hovering around 600 stores wherein you see Costco is just dominating the space as of late. So big shoes to fill, a large role to take on in changing times. And after that, Trent, we're going to be able to see how they're able to be affected by all of the competition, both online and in brick and mortar. One final note regarding Walmart's call is how bullish they were on the Walmart Toy Lab. So again, switching gears back to the Walmart story here is the holidays approach if you are unfamiliar with the rollout they basically have a try before you buy area in some stores to allow children to play with toys prior to putting them on their list what we found more interesting is that a from a blast from the past their toy catalog the walmart toy book as they call it had a much greater distribution this year and trent i know you got one in the mail for example i have not gotten one yet but that is very interesting definitely looking to nostalgia here for this story but this was an interesting tactic especially since so many younger kids are web savvy now they're on instagram they're on facebook and obviously they aren't old enough to have the nostalgia surrounding holiday toy catalogs that their parents might have had from perhaps sears and other macy's catalogs but even more interesting to us is that there really isn't an online equivalent sure there's an online store branding Walmart as America's best toy shop, for example, online, but there isn't too much interactivity here. And certainly nothing encouraging children to fill out an online wish list. They have a paper wish list in their catalog. Very interesting, Trent. Well, that does it for our first story here on the Retail Focus podcast as we took a look at Walmart. Now, coming up after this break, we'll have a chat with Sean Turner. He's the co-founder and CTO of Swiftly. And again, we're going to talk about tech, especially as it pertains to the small and mid-sized grocery space and customer engagement. Now, on the show, we do talk about grocery a lot. In fact, it's one of our favorite subjects, and we talk quite a bit also about grocery tech and tech surrounding grocery retail. Joining us today is Sean Turner. He's the co-founder and CTO of Swiftly, which is a company based in the Pacific Northwest. Swiftly is designed to allow smaller grocers to compete in the online realm, digital realm as well, I should mention. Above and beyond that, increased store visits and customer loyalty. They have a whole host of digital solutions for retailers, including their Swift Lane app checkout platform, which I checked out before this podcast and absolutely fantastic platform. Sean joins us today to discuss the current state of tech and AI, especially as it pertains to small and regional grocery and where things are headed in the next calendar year. First of all, Sean, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. 
And first, I gave a little bit of an introduction, but I'm sure you can do it more justice, just so our listeners are aware of your background, the company's background, the place from which you're kind of analyzing the grocery industry. I was wondering if you could speak to why Swiftly was founded in the first place and what Swiftly kind of does on the day-to-day. Yeah, I would love to. So Swiftly is the operating system for supermarkets. And what we set out to do was to bring the advantages of e-commerce to brick-and-mortar stores in a way that we could make grocery shopping easier for consumers. So my co-founders and I, before we started this company, we were actually on the other side of the fence at a company called Symphony Commerce. And there we had built the leading retail platform for consumer packaged goods brands. And what we saw there was just the monumentous growth of e-commerce and CPG. And we realized that as we look to accelerate that growth, grocery was really one of the best position spaces to do that. And actually, we saw that news echoed in uh, Walmart's latest quarterly announcements of the, the strong growth that they're seeing in their grocery e-commerce business, and that that business is actually being driven primarily by food. And so what we did was we built a platform that's both a consumer-facing app as well as a grocery-facing platform. And from the consumer's perspective, you're able to download the application, you will discover stores around you, see deals in those stores, be able to add products to your shopping list. Once you've got a product on your list, we're going to tell you where it is in the store, so we're tied into the store planogram. If you're in the store, you can actually scan items and pay for them right from your phone, and that includes produce, weighted products, price embedded, and that's a feature that we call Swift Lane Checkout. When you are scanning products, we're going to automatically apply any coupons that apply to your purchases. And we're going to help you to participate in the store's digital loyalty program. And so that can give you the opportunity to earn points, get product rewards, and interact with that all from a digital app. And then lastly, we have a feature where customers are able to get products drop shipped to your door direct from CPG companies. And so when you think about solving grocery for the consumer, that might mean that, hey, that 50-pound bag of dog food or that case of water, I'd rather just have that shipped to my home rather than have to lug it all the way there. And from the retailer's point of view, we're able to light that up by having it drop shipped direct from the manufacturer so that retailers aren't having to touch the product, manage the online orders, put it in the box and ship it. And it really is a turnkey system for the retailer. So I was just going to say, just as an aside, kind of piggybacking off of that point, you know, when you're talking about the 50 pound of dog food or the massive cases of water, it's such a huge benefit, it seems like, for a retailer to be able to pass that through to the customer without handling it, because that takes up a lot of stockroom space, that takes up a lot of labor as well. It's a huge labor cost, and it's labor not only for the retailer, but also for the consumer as well. And when you think about it, one of the things we've heard from retailer after retailer is those kinds of products are increasingly moving online today. So one of our retailer partners told us that they used to have a large oral care section. But over the years, that's dwindled and dwindled to where now they just have a few SKUs because so much of those purchases have moved to the Amazons and the Costcos and the Walmart.coms of the world. And what we're really offering is the chance for retailers to get ahead of that and to create, an, if you will, a geofence around uh, those product categories and make sure that the consumer stays purchasing those product categories from the same grocer that they've always been shopping. You know, with that, it, it kind of brings us to then areas of opportunity for grocers. And we'll talk about 
some of the potential barriers to entry for platforms like this here. But I know I was reading a, actually a white paper on the Swiftly website written by Tom Dolan, just talking about how in many cases, grocery is still very much a, a tactile medium. You, I've heard people say it's going to be a cold day in hell before they let someone else pick their avocado out for them. But at the same time, it seems like there's a lot of opportunities for the center of the store and some of the HBA products like you're mentioning. Where are retailers seeing the biggest areas of opportunity to serve customers and kind of meet them where they're at in the digital platforms? Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And one of the things that we've seen is that when you think about structurally, what advantages do grocers have that everybody else in the online world is trying to go after? That advantage is the customer, right? Grocery stores today have more customers than any online player. And really, the store's strength is ownership of that customer. The weakness for stores today is that they don't actually own that customer outside of the store. And so when a customer is online shopping, chances are they're going to be thinking about an Amazon or a Boxed or a Jet.com for those orders. And if we can figure out a way to let the brick-and-mortar retailer reach out to that customer and own that customer when they're outside of the store, then that's really where the opportunity lies. And that's why we created a platform that solves for the entire customer purchase journey, all the way from uh, ideation and figuring out my shopping list to when I'm in the store to when I'm reordering and taking advantage of a store's digital loyalty program. And it's because we're able to bring a digital experience into the brick-and-mortar world and then extend it from the brick-and-mortar shopping experience into the consumer's home that we're able to set up the retailer to own the consumer outside of the store. And once you do that, you actually allow the grocers to really compete with the online players from a point of strength and the online players' point of weakness. You know, with grocery, it's still, it's very interesting for us, at least in terms of retail, because it's still inherently kind of a local experience for a lot of people. Of course, there's Kroger, you talked about Walmart and their e-commerce grocery, but there's still a ton of players in the grocery space on a more local level, whether you're talking area chains, whether you're talking mom or pops, other than some of the obvious ones, like maybe not having the IT personnel of a Kroger or a Walmart, what are some barriers to entry when we're talking about the adoption of some of these digital commerce mechanisms for these local retailers so that they can, so to speak, own that customer outside the store? You know, tech and grocery is really challenging. And it doesn't matter if you're a multi-thousand store operator or if you're a one-store operator. It seems like everybody in the grocery space is really struggling with the technology. And we did a couple of things that help out quite a bit. So we developed a technology that we call the cloud register, which is a transactional engine that we built from the ground up to both equally be able to handle in-store orders. So thinking about how do I compute my sugar taxes and my CRV and my sales tax uh, and my uh, weighted products and be able to run all the same rules that you would inside of a register, as well as equally well handle online orders where now I don't need to compete sales tax for the store, I actually need to compete sales tax of my delivery address. And so I've got a different set of rules, but there aren't great platforms that are able to actually do both today. And we built that platform that can equally well handle both, and we call it the cloud register. And what we've found for grocery stores is that the more that that 
platform can manage the entirety of the transactional experience for the consumer. So from the moment where the consumer is saying, hey, show me what's on sale, show me where the items are in the store, let me add that to my list, let me purchase it in the store, or let me purchase it for delivery, then by having one platform that orchestrates that entire transaction, you can make sure that you get the fundamentals right. Like that online order is going to take advantage of all of the uh, loyalty program and promotion. So I'm still going to earn points on that order. I could still use a product reward on that order, even if it's getting delivered to my house. And I know that I'm going to be paying the right price. And surprisingly, it's in getting those fundamentals right that a lot of grocery IT systems are having trouble today. And we've seen that be one of the biggest benefits that we've brought to grocers. Now, one of the things that we've talked about a little bit is certainly bringing things like the loyalty program to digital platforms and the like. But one of the reasons that grocery is still very much a local game is because of that in-store experience. I think of a retailer like Wegmans or a retailer like Publix that have almost a cult following in their areas of the United States because a lot of local grocers can kind of go above and beyond with that neighborhood or that localized experience. How can companies make that above and beyond their loyalty program translate into the digital or e-commerce realm, translate to that realm away from the store? Fantastic question. So the model that we've seen be very effective is we started with a digital loyalty program and that provided a great amount of value for the in-store shopper. Hey, I'm going to be able to see what's on special. I'm going to be able to take advantage of digital coupons. I'm going to be able to see what my point balance is and actually redeem my points for some great products that I might want. And that's what gets people into the ecosystem. And so very quickly, we saw growth within a chain for for our platform go from 0% of transactional volume all the way up to upwards of 30% of transactional volume, which from a comp perspective is fairly similar to where applications like the Starbucks app and Starbucks have gotten to. And that's very significant for grocers because what that earns them is the canvas. It earns them the right to have the conversation with the customer. And once you've got that right, you're able to start to build a much more dynamic conversation with the consumer where you could say, hey, you should try our Swiftline checkout feature so that you're not waiting in line. And for we've seen that customers that engage with that product end up actually visiting the store 40% more often. And then they're launching the app every time in the store. So if they do that, then now you're actually able to have a two-way conversation with the consumer when they're in your store. And you can say things like, hey, you know, we've got a great new product. You've tried very similar products in the past. Here's a personalized coupon for you to go try that new product. Or our avocados are really fresh today. And so that might be something that you want to take home with you. And what that starts to do is allow you to drive basket size for that customer. And so as customers start to engage in the program, we've actually seen 50% growth in basket size for those digitally engaged consumers. And those are the kinds of conversations that start in the store, but then grow and grow online. As now, when the consumer is at home building their shopping list, you're actually able to start to make suggestions and say, well, hey, rather than buy that from Amazon, you should buy that from my retailer because I'm able to give you this pricing advantage, or I have this special skew that you're not going to be able to find online, or I'm really fresh in this today, and so I'm the right place to go get that product. Now, the next couple of questions I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you simply because of your position, because you have kind of an inside look at 
tech and grocery as a whole. And again, our guest today, Sean Turner, he's the co-founder and CTO of Swiftly. But one of them, you mentioned recommendations in your last conversation piece there. And I wanted to kind of ask you about that because in interacting with customers, it seems like there's a, a very fine line between too much and then too little in terms of suggestions, in terms of notifications and the like. Where is that happy medium there for grocers? You know, the hard answer there is there is no one right answer. It really varies on a customer-by-customer basis. And so what we've seen is there are some customers that are not at all deal-focused, and they just want to get in and get out of the store as quickly as possible and get just what they're looking for. Other customers are willing to sit at home and explore, and will really plan their shopping trip by saying, well, hey, show me what's great. Show me what's new. Show me what's on special. And that's going to drive their shopping and planning for the week. And so the key is really being able to understand where does this particular customer bucket into those personas and making sure that you're addressing them with the right level of communication frequency, recommendations, and that the customer at the end of the day is the one that's in control And so we're not a big believer in everybody gets the same push notification or even that everybody gets push notifications. That's really something that through technology, you need to let your customer opt into how much they want to hear from you so that at every step, they're always feeling like you're delivering them value, but not being intrusive. And I I kind of wish a lot of retailers would take that step there with the push notifications. A lot of people get kind of push notification exhaustion, if you will. But one other thing I did want to ask you about is when we talk about AI, when we talk about tech, a lot of times you go to a conference like NRF or something like that, and you're looking at technologies that are a ways off in terms of adoption, in terms of actually seeing them adopted in store, in terms of seeing them adopted in apps. What are some things that you feel like, given your position in the industry over the next year or two years, that we can actually expect to be implemented in a very concrete way? What retailers need to focus on in the next year is just getting the basics right. And what I mean by that is recommendation engines can provide a lot of incremental value. But before you go down that road, you have to make sure that you've got the fundamentals working. So for example, if I'm making an online order and I order a 20-pack of Pepsi because I've got a coupon on that, but the store's out, and so they substitute me a 12-pack or two 12-packs, and all of a sudden, my per-unit price jumps 20% because I can't take advantage of that manufacturer's coupon on the 20-pack, that's going to be a very, very frustrated consumer. And when you look at the high number of substitutions that we see in most online orders for grocery, that compounds to the point where we've seen customers pay 20, 30, 40% more than they were expecting, and that becomes a customer service issue for you. And so the fundamentals that the store needs to get right is just to make sure that they're able to deliver that great customer experience through their online platform, that when these exceptions come up, they're able to understand what are the ways that I can understand that, hey, I might not be meeting the customer expectation here, and react to that appropriately, whether it be reaching back out to the customer or price match or even short shipping them or the appropriate substitution. And those are the kinds of things that your transactional platform has to support, has to put you in the driver's seat around, has to include the consumer in. And if you can't get that right, the 
shiny recommendation engine or AI technology is just going to be throwing more volume through a bucket that's fundamentally leaky that may be causing more customer dissatisfaction than empowerment. I like that analogy there. And finally, you know, again, it doesn't have to be something in the next year or two, but what is one thing in the combination between AI and supermarkets or grocery that you're really excited about in terms of a development for the future? You know, one of the things that's really special about this space is how personal grocery shopping is to everyone. And when you start having a conversation with anyone that you might meet in an airport, if you ask them, hey, what do you buy in the grocery store? That can tell you so much about a person's life. And when you think about how can I enhance this person's life by getting the right products for them, by helping them to achieve their goals, whether it be uh, nutrition or health-related or a new dish that they've always wanted to make, grocery really has the opportunity to touch people in a way that's very, very personal. And one of the things that we've been really thrilled with is by introducing people to new items, helping them to get acquainted to products that they've maybe never tried before, and then couple that with the information for, you know, hey, how do I cook with this ingredient? What kind of dishes can I make? That you really have the opportunity to increase somebody's happiness a way that's really difficult to do in other industries. Once again, that's Sean Turner. He's the co-founder and CTO of Swiftly. And Sean, if someone wanted to get a hold of Swiftly, check out Swiftly, read any of the white papers that you guys have produced, where would they find that? Useswiftly.com. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. Once again, we thank Sean for joining us. And from that interview, it's only proper to talk about a grocery store. It's from a retailer we talked about a ton in the lead of this show in Walmart to a retailer that we've barely discussed. Grocery Outlet posted a positive earnings surprise on Monday after market close. And Layton's mentioned them in passing in the past. They're all over the place where Layton lives in Southern California. But this is the first full-fledged story that we've done on Grocery Outlet in the history of the podcast. Coincidentally, I actually visited a grocery outlet last weekend for the first time while traveling in San Jose. Now, that being said, let's talk about the history of the company and their current footprint. And as much of this story is going to be focused on their business model and some of the things that they have going on as it will be on earnings. This is only their second all-time earnings call, as we'll discuss, but We're not going to be focused as much on the numbers as we were with Walmart. We instead want to tell you a little bit about their model. If you're unfamiliar, there's some very interesting things that really differentiate this retailer from the way most retailers are run. Now, they are a heavily concentrated retailer, but in different areas of the United States. They have a massive following on the West Coast, which is, again, their wheelhouse. Mostly, you've got California, Oregon. They have some outlets in Washington and Nevada as well but also have quite a few locations in Pennsylvania across the country there, and they are looking at potential expansion to new markets. They made that much clear on this earnings call. They build themselves as a high-growth, extreme-value retailer. That second part, that extreme-value part, tells us more about their MO as far as approaching customers. It is true that they are fast-growing. In fact, they had 128 stores in 2006, Now they have over 320 stores as of this earnings call, 
But as far as their proposition for customers, they're basically the Ollie's Bargain Outlet or Big Lots of the food world. And I feel like their model is similar to the one that Big Lots is now attempting to kind of sink into, where it's a combination of staple goods and that treasure hunt, whereas Ollie's more in the treasure hunt aspect. They do carry everyday staple goods, again, to encourage repeat and neighborhood customers. So things like milk, things like bread and the like. But they rotate a number of the other goods based on the deals their buyers can negotiate and based on their store manager's whims. And we'll get to that in a second. So think of their offerings as a two-tiered system. So again, the first tier, those consumer essential products. So milk, bread, soda, produce, and so forth. The second comprised of items that aren't necessarily considered essential, but where deals exist. Think those middle-of-the-store items, like granola bars, for example. They do also carry a decent amount of non-food, so things like HBA and paper products, so anything from toothpaste to bath tissue. Additionally, they found their model to work on multiple income and geography levels, something Leighton and I were actually talking about before the podcast started. You will see grocery outlets in maybe lower-income areas, but you'll see just as many in high-income areas as well. Their demographic value is not limited to that traditional value shopper. And actually, this was very evident in my trip to the San Jose location, as it was in a portion of San Jose. I looked it up afterwards with high income levels, demographically at least higher than a lot of different areas throughout the Bay Area. You could make an argument that basically everyone that's in San Jose at this point has a higher income level in order to afford to live there because housing prices are so high in that area of the country. But going one step further on their business model, very similar to that of Thriftway or Associated Wholesale Grocers or IGA, in that they pride themselves on what's called an IO model. IO standing for Independent Owner Operators, and they mentioned this acronym a lot on the call. So you'll hear IO a lot as it pertains to grocery outlet. However, branding is stronger from store to store in terms of corporate branding than it is for any of the others we mentioned. If you go to an AWG store, for example, it's going to carry completely different branding from one location to the next. Same thing with the Thriftway, same thing with an IGA. You'll have the Thriftway name, but mainly you're going to see that personalization from store to store. The personalization with Grocery Outlet pertains mainly to the product selection and the way the store is laid out. But the logo, as far as Grocery Outlet's logo and their tagline, falling in love on every aisle, that exists in each of their 320 locations. So there's a lot of consistency there. It's not like a lot of these other stores that have that independent owner-operator model. Ace would be another example of that and something that we've talked about before on the show. So just something to keep in mind there is they do see themselves as a concrete brand despite the fact that they've got a lot of independent owner-operators kind of overseeing the day-to-day. They feel as though the I.O. model really allows for encouragement among their owner-operators, similar to how franchise QSRs often perform better than their corporate-owned counterparts. Additionally, the localization of ownership provides for greater evaluation of decision-making as it pertains to the buying of the actual products on the sales floor, negotiating product deals, and stocking those individual products. As such, the store that Trent visited in San Jose will look very different and have a different product selection than the one near me in Orange County. And I think that all of the stores in Orange County are going to be a little bit different in terms of their exact product 
differentiation. So no corporate planograms, so to speak, that you would see at a Target or a Walmart, wherein you can go to perhaps a small footprint Target in New York City and see pretty much the same outlay in a Los Angeles store format as well for Target. So overall, IO select around 75% of their assortment in each store, which is just absolutely astounding. When Trent told me that, I just was mind blown because management has a lot to task here. They have a lot to be able to view in terms of what is most popular in each individualized area in which they do business. But to their credit, they have a lot of tools for store management to use in order to pick the right assortment for each store. So this is above and beyond what you might see in their franchise or owner operator models. The company announced an IPO earlier this year. One of the reasons why we haven't really discussed them to this point, this in fact is their second ever earnings call and we are just delighted to cover it within this call. Overall, there was not a single negative thing that we could find on the call for this growing retailer. The big headline for the company was a beat on earnings per share, and this was a big catalyst behind their share price popping over 8% in early trading on Tuesday. They were expected to come in with adjusted earnings per share of 19 cents, according to Zach's consensus estimates. However, they posted earnings per share figures of 22 cents per share, beating that figure by three cents. Net sales were up as well, a function of growth of store count and those same store sales increasing. They ended the third quarter with sales up 13.1% year over year. And Trent, we were just talking about the retailer in Walmart whose sales saw a jump. Of course, they are a massive retailer. We cannot even compare scales because of how much bigger Walmart is. But this double-digit overall revenue incline is something to be very proud of if you're executive management within this company. Those comps jumped by an astounding 5.8%. Again, those same store sales jumped a very good figure over last year. Last year's third quarter, by the way, saw a 1.6% increase over 2017. So as I had mentioned that they select, they handpick 75% of their store selection. Well, that assortment picking is doing them a favor. They are apparently doing something right here because 5.8% year over year in comps is a great figure. That is extremely impressive. Of course, like I said, they do have data metrics to go by when selecting their assortment, but still an impressive figure nonetheless, given their model. So on a two-year stack, they are seeing a 7.4% jump in comps, which is among the top in the grocery retail space. And this is a very interesting space, especially where I live, Trent, in Southern California. I was just telling you before recording, you will see a Whole Foods market on one end of the intersection and not far from that intersection, you will see a grocery outlet which has an entirely different business model and an entirely different demographic in which they market to. So a very interesting space indeed because everybody's wanting something a little bit differently, but everybody is price conscious. So I think this is going to be a very, very interesting display, an interesting dynamic going forward in the Southern California area over the next five, 10 years to see how all of these different grocers, Kroger and Albertsons included, fare in the face of this niche competition. As far as that store growth is concerned, they did open seven net new stores in the quarter, opening eight, just closing one. They've maintained guidance for 2019 fiscal year of 30 net new stores, which when you look at the number of stores in their system represents a growth of nearly 10% per year. It's actually an increase, albeit slight, from their initial guidance of 29 net new stores in the year. Of course, that includes that one closure. 
Their goal of opening new stores, as they discussed on the call itself, is attempting to really cultivate developing markets while ensuring expansion continues and established markets for them. So they are not trying to cannibalize the stores in which they have operating for several years now. They did note a negative impact from $1.8 million in public company costs, which, of course, they did not have last year. And as with any earnings release, we went to the conference call to find out more information. In a similar fashion to Ollie's Bargain Outlet, they talked at length about the importance of connections with suppliers and the need to cement positive deal flow. Now, when you look at Grocery Outlet, you know, again, a company that's newly public, you look at their business model, you look at the things that were set on the call. It took me in a time machine back to about four years ago when Ollie's Bargain Outlet was in the same boat. And a lot of similar things were mentioned on this call. There are just so many parallels, even though their business model might be similar to a big lots and style. So many parallels here between where the company is at now and where Ollie's Bargain Outlet was four to five years ago. They mentioned an increased ability Grocery Outlet did to strengthen existing relationships and develop new ones for a greater number of brand name products on those discounts, on those treasure hunt mechanisms. The overall discussion on the call, again, took me back to when Ollie's first went public. They talked for several quarters, Ollie's did, about how deal flow was easier as a public company because they had more gravitas, about how many suppliers grew to have greater trust. It kind of opened it up to better deals. Sounds as though that exact same thing, based on the conversations on the call, happening now with Grocery Outlet. The other aspect of going public is centered around ensuring their IOs still feel as though they have a say in company direction. Again, driven by independent owner operators, so it's very important that they feel like they're still connected to the company while the company is public. Now, to this point, Grocery Outlet held a series of regional meetings with their IOs. In early October, they had a whopping 95% participation rate. So a lot of these regional conferences were attended by the IOs. Only 5% of their IOs did not have a chance to attend. They feel as though on the corporate level, there is much of an information resources firm to their IOs as they are a supporter of product acquisition, which of course is something also that they do. And we'll talk about that in a second. Key part of these meetings was a give and take with best practices from the IOs. They view this conversation very much as a two-way street. They're not looking to press best practices on anyone or any particular outlet because they know each market, each location does things a little bit differently, but they do want to serve kind of as a consortium of those best practices so that the IOs get the best experience they can. What was also interesting is that they gave somewhat of an unexpected outlook for comps in the long term. By unexpected, I mean slightly below where we thought they were going to come in. CEO Eric Lindbergh said that they are targeting long-term comps around 1% to 3% of an increase yearly with all of their initiatives in the pipeline. And again, caught us by surprise because similar companies are seeing higher comps and grocery outlet themselves, as we just talked about, saw better comps in this quarter. But because of the individual nature of each store, their corporate offices have also found it pertinent to invest in further ordering tools for the IOs. Layton talked about it in that 75% of the merchandise on the shelves in any grocery outlet is decided by that independent owner-operator. And there's a very real possibility for things to go south if IOs don't manage to maintain their inventory, not just to keep levels where they need to be, but also ensure that their local selection is worthwhile to their neighborhoods. So... 
What Grocery Outlet has done is work to develop a proprietary system to manage flow of products from warehouses to stores and assist those IOs with ordering. We should note it's not as though IOs are making deals independently with vendors themselves. Rather, what Grocery Outlet is doing is they are, as a company, managing deal flow, making that available to their IOs through this platform to give them the choice of what to order for their individual store. Essentially, Grocery Outlet wants to leverage this platform to mine a greater amount of data as far as decision-making for future partnerships while also making IOs aware of the new products available in the system. And that's why it's not just enough to send IOs a spreadsheet system on what's available because then they have to pick through all of the new products. Instead, where Grocery Outlet wants to be is they want to get to a point where they're making things easier on the decision-making front for their IOs and helping to drive their comps northward by giving them targeted suggestions, not unlike something that Amazon would do for a single shopper. So if Grocery Outlet, continuing with that granola bar analogy, Grocery Outlet sees that granola bars are selling really well in a particular market or in a particular store, they can actually send notifications to those IOs saying, hey, we just struck a new deal on a different type of granola bar here. Do you want to try this in your store? Because otherwise, IOs, you get kind of that paradox of choice going on. When you have so many choices on so many deals that Grocery Outlet has struck, you don't really know what to carry. So they're making things easier on the IOs by kind of bringing in that data, sending them targeted suggestions, but also making sure they just know about some of those new deals there and they know about some of the products that are available to them as far as ordering and getting them stocked in stores and on displays. Finally, looking ahead, they want to continue their 10% year-over-year store count growth on into 2020. Should be easier for them to attain this number. They already have an idea they mentioned on the call as far as leases they're signing and markets they're entering. So they feel pretty confident that they're going to hit that 10% growth number in 2020. Finally, what I wanted to close with, Layton, is the fact that brand recognition with Grocery Outlet, even though they have kind of, when you look at their logo, it's kind of plain, have kind of plain branding there. But people that shop at Grocery Outlet love the store. In fact, love them so much that during this recent quarter in San Luis Obispo, there was actually a couple who first met in a local grocery outlet store. They asked the I.O. there if they could hold their marriage ceremony in the same aisle they first met, which was apparently the candy aisle. So you don't hear about that often. You don't hear about people getting married in a Walmart or getting married in uh, Kroger, even though I'm sure it has happened from time to time. That's just kind of the brand recognition and the strength of the brand that you see with Grocery Outlet. And one of the reasons why in this circumstance that Grocery Outlet has had the success and grown to the point that they have. Now, we wanted to round back to one final story here on the Retail Focus podcast. We wanted to talk about JCPenney. Now, JCPenney, it's kind of good and bad here for them. They did report a less than expected operating net loss of $97 million in the quarter. That resulted in a bit of a pop on the stock market the following day after the earnings came out. It's 41% smaller, in fact, than the loss it recorded in the same quarter one year prior. But overall, same-store sales still fell 9.3%. A lot of people said, well, that's because they stopped selling appliances, they stopped selling furniture. Well, even if you take those categories out, same-store sales still fell 6.6% in the quarter. And Leighton, I know you are a longtime shareholder of JCPenney, but looking over this earnings call, what were your takeaways from it? 
Yeah, this was their third quarter earnings call, and there was a lot of expectations going in, both from analysts and both from myself. Just before this release, I decided to sell my shares. I was a longtime shareholder. I had shares held for around two and a half, three years. I bought around the $5 mark, so that was the, the price point in which I had struck a deal with my myself there, basically having faith in the company that they would indeed have a positive turnaround since that happened since I purchased those shares. Marvin Ellison had stepped down and moved to Lowe's, and he's now the CEO of Lowe's. Their CFO soon left the company thereafter. And then they were on a CEO search for a permanent CEO. And Jill Soltow is now the CEO of the company, really trying to transform the company, starting some new initiatives, taking away appliances with the company, taking away some other major categories such as furniture, although you do see a random table from time to time if you visit a JCPenney that may be for sale. But overall, the company is not that healthy. And so those expectations, like I said, were all over the map because they're in a sort of transformational period, a period in which has seen more store closures in calendar year 2019, a few closures in 2018. So you can see that they are still focused on being unit profitable. They're trying to keep open the stores that they have open now and make sure that they're sustainable for the future. I've actually visited two stores recently, Trent, and I have both good and bad news relating to my local visits. And I will get to the nitty gritty in the earnings call and keep that bit short. But first I wanted to talk about my personal experience because it is so recent. So one of the stores I recently visited was a JCPenney that's actually near Carson, California. It's in a, a shopping mall that's been redeveloped very much so over the past few years in South Bay Pavilion, just off the 405, just north northeast of Long Beach, California. And if you look at that shopping center, Trent, it has a lot going for it now because the, the former Sears has been redeveloped and now there's a Burlington in there and there is actually a new Target that is opened and there's an Ikea to the south of the complex. But the JCPenney, and this is this is part of the negative here in this particular story, the JCPenney is actually on the other side of all of the redevelopment. So there's not a lot of traffic going to the JCPenney. It actually faces a residential community, which at first glance you would say, well, that's their customer base. Their customers are coming from perhaps the residential area, but that is not the case. This shopping complex, like I said, is just off of the 405, and that is where a lot of the traffic is coming from. It's coming from the west, not the east, which is where the JCPenney is located. So that's one bad thing for the JCPenney. You don't really know. You have to look really hard at the frontage of South Bay Pavilion to even know a JCPenney exists. So that's that's a downside. However, when you go into the JCPenney, a few good things come out, Trent. And I think one of them is the fact that they have a lot of traffic. They have online pickup. They have very clear signage throughout the store. The store is clean. I will say this though. The one downside is that the merchandise mix, while the signage is there, it's a little bit off. There are areas, multiple areas throughout the store that are clearance sections, and they have not gone to the effort of separating out different merchandise, meaning within particular categories. Let's say men's, for example, you'll have t-shirts that are mixed in with exercise pants, mixed in with socks. It just makes no sense. They have not gone to any effort. It's essentially like going into a Ross or TJ Maxx without that sub sector 
component differentiation. You you don't see one line of clothing matching the other. So if you're looking for a particular shirt, you're going to have to wade through hundreds of pants maybe to be able to find and identify that shirt that you want. So I think that's a downside for this JCPenney. But again, a lot of traffic in the store. People are excited about the price cuts that they see with that clearance merchandise. They did have a lot of sales throughout the store, particularly in suits and the, the higher end categories that they've carried for quite some time. So I think that has... A, a very positive turn for the company, but overall, not necessarily the best of sites, especially when you're looking at a mall that has been completely redeveloped. And basically, all of their competitors, if if you wish to call them that, have done a much better job in merchandising and making sure that their customers are directed towards the right thing that they want. So lastly, I will say that this JCPenney that I visited most recently was in Dearborn, Michigan a.k.a. Detroit, Michigan. And Fairlane Town Center is the mall that it was in. This was a mall that was opened in 1976. I'll talk a little bit about this mall later when I talk about the stores I visited most recently. But this JCPenney in this mall was also flooded with traffic. I will say, though, again, just like the other JCPenney near Carson, California, it was not the best layout. There were things that were strewn about the store. It was actually less clean than that store in Carson, California. The carpet was dirty. The floors were dirty. And to be honest with you, something was happening there on the first floor. I couldn't quite tell. looked like they were reconditioning the property, but they just put up drywall that didn't meet the ceiling. You couldn't quite tell what was going on there. Not a good look for this particular JCPenney, but again, a ton of traffic. So I'm sort of at odds with my my overall takeaway here. I think that they are driving traffic and there are some really, really good deals if you're looking for some cheaper apparel. But overall, the the type of store that you're getting is not one of quality. You, you don't think of a store like Macy's when you enter in JCPenney. And I think that divide now is widening, that, that quality of store, that the essence of the store when you walk in is not what it once was. And it's it's not like something they can turn around within a matter of a couple of years. Because when you look at their operating statement, it's just it, it's in a position where they can't really capitalize on even the easy fixes on a store-by-store basis because they don't simply have the cash flow to do so. And if you look at this most recent earnings report, while shares were up, you see that Really, same-store sales were still down. Revenue was still down far below expectations. And I think that is going to be a problem with them. How can they redevelop their stores? How can they clean up their stores in a meaningful way when they don't have enough cash to do so? They're able to pay payroll right now. Of course, something Sears is having problems with. But overall, you see that earnings per share came in at a loss of 30 cents versus a loss of 55 cents expected. Analysts were expecting much worse. But again, I talked about the revenue figure dropping. Came in at $2.38 billion for the quarter versus $2.51 expected from most analysts. And adjusted same-store sales were down 6.6%. That is a horrible sign, Trent, for the company. And I think despite the positive signs from Jill Soltow with her prepared remarks in this latest earnings release where she said the past quarter was an exciting and energizing time for JCPenney. I think it's going to be really, really hard to target that sustainable, profitable growth that she eyes in the next few quarters. 
And one of the things you mentioned, the revenue not being maybe up to snuff for some analysts, but net loss per share improving over last year. Part of that is the fact that inventory has declined and it JCPenney has spent a lot of the last five years kind of chasing those inventory levels, trying to get them down. Inventory did decline 9% to $2.93 billion. So, of course, that will help matters a little bit going forward because they are not retaining so much inventory. They also, one of the headlines on the earnings call on their website was the fact that they maintain a strong liquidity position of approximately $1.7 billion. Still, people worried about debt coming due 2023. There's a lot of debt impact coming due that year, so it's got to be a quick turnaround story for Jill Soltow and company if it is going to be one. I'm a little bit more optimistic probably than Layton is. I think generally when you see these circumstances, even if JCPenney does decline to you know maybe some eventual far-off bankruptcy, we saw how long it took with Sears, and I think overall JCPenney has the potential to head in the correct direction, but again, I think it comes down to location maintenance, as Layton was speaking to, and I think it comes down to closing more stores. Unfortunately for the workers in those stores, they have some that are just not very profitable. In fact, near me, there is the top performing store in the region and the bottom performing store in a region within mere minutes from each other. So I think it's pretty clear which one they would rather close in that circumstance. So again, it comes down to reevaluating their store position And we think it's important for them to have stores in markets, especially with all the buy online, pick up in store optionality they've been able to bring to their customer base. But they can do it in a selective manner, really kind of trim down where those locations are at. I think it could improve the company in the long term. And really quick, just before we go on to the final segment of the Retail Focus podcast, Leighton, I wanted to double back. You mentioned you were in Michigan. You'd been in the upper Midwest this past week. You actually visited a few more malls than just the mall that JCPenney was in, and I was wondering if you mind talking about those. Yeah, so the Fairlane Town Center was the one that was with the JCPenney that I had mentioned in Dearborn, Michigan. Talk a little bit about that before I move on to the other mall I visited in Toledo, Ohio, where they only have one mall now still standing, one conventional indoor mall that we'd love to visit. The Fairlane Town Center in Dearborn, Michigan is a mall that is actually on several mall lists. Uh, I peruse these websites that talk about the dying malls throughout the country. And this is one that is listed as basically mediocre, one that is not necessarily thriving, but one that is not dying. And so after having visited, I came away with a, a generally positive impression What's interesting to me is that this mall is having a layout still that dates back to 1976 when it was still built. So the general mall layout is the same. They had a Sears that closed uh, about a year ago, which is still not occupied, but they are going to have sort of a specialty complex go in there. It's sort of an entertainment complex. The mall traffic, it was a Saturday, Trent. It wasn't that strong. You would expect it to be a lot stronger for a Saturday. However, in Detroit, it was it was about 28 degrees, very cold. It had just snowed a few days prior, so people probably didn't want to get out of the house. But I will say that the Macy's was thriving. Like I said, the JCPenney had a lot of traffic. There's an H&M there. There's a Forever 21 there, which may or may not stay with that current pending bankruptcy. And in the center of the mall, Trent, adjacent to the food court, They had a Christmas choir, which I think may be a little bit early for a Christmas choir, but they had a Christmas choir with the characters from Frozen, from, of course, the Disney-owned property there. And I think that's 
It was a very interesting display, and it certainly did bring a lot of traffic. It's unclear to me as to whether that traffic went ahead and migrated to the actual stores that those adjacent stores to the big box stores like Macy's and JCPenney just didn't seem to have too much traffic in them. But again, the weather. So that's where I'll leave that. I will say, if you are curious, again, this is the Fairlane Town Center in Dearborn, Michigan. This center is absolutely stunning in terms of the architecture. They have all sorts of different ramps. There are parts of the mall that are just two-story, parts of the mall that are three-story. The The different architecture within is is actually pretty interesting, and I love how they really haven't redone any of it. And you can go in, type Fairlane Town Center on Google and look at those images and, and see for yourself and decide for yourself whether it's as stunning as I say it is. But moving on to the Franklin Park Mall, which again is the only mall left, the only mall in Toledo, Ohio. This has always been pretty much their main shopping center. And so this dates back to 1971. So a few years older than the mall in Detroit that I had visited. Around 50 years old. And Trent, I will say this mall was actually thriving. It was very interesting because this is in the north part of town. There's areas in the north part of town that maybe aren't the greatest, but 1.3 million square feet in terms of overall retail floor space for tenants. They have four anchor tenants. They have a movie theater. They have a JCPenney. They have a Macy's. And they have a Dick Sporting Goods, in fact, that was part of a redevelopment back not that long ago, I believe, in 2010. And so if you look at the mall as it is currently with pretty good traffic levels, they have sort of the entertainment side of the mall where you can access stores both inside and outside. Again, the movie theater. I think that this mall is going to stay for a long period of time. The floors look original, so that was cool. We talk about nostalgia all the time on this particular podcast, but Overall, they've been taken care of. I mean, it's not like the floors have been neglected in any sort of way. All of the storefronts were very well taken care of. And I think that if you look at the overall occupancy rates for this mall, you come away with the idea that this mall is not stressed out in any sort of way. They have traffic. They have good stores. The areas are clean. The common areas are clean with a food court that is also fully occupied. I should say that in the fall of 2013... The mall, this and this was after a redevelopment, a multi-year redevelopment. The mall was sold to Starwood Capital Group with seven other prior Westfield properties. Westfield, of course, being a, a mall owner. But this is interesting because you're looking at this as a redevelopment turned maybe money grab. They, they are selling at the height. Maybe they were thinking of its potential valuation. But I will say it has certainly not gone down since 2013. It looks as robust as ever. The parking lots were full. I came away with a very positive impression. And for all that I said about the Fairlane Town Center there in Detroit, Michigan, it was pretty much just as cold in Toledo because Toledo is just one hour south of Detroit, Michigan. And people found their way out to this mall. So whether it's for the entertainment side of things or whether it's for the shopping side of the Franklin Park Mall, they definitely were enjoying themselves and found a way, found a reason to get out of the house. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We move on to the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead, where each Leighton and I talk about things we're looking ahead to over the week 
month or year forthcoming. I'll go ahead and start here. Mine's pretty simple. I'm looking ahead to Lowe's earnings next week. Lowe's has been in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons lately. Under Marvin Ellison's tenure, we just talked about his former employer in JCPenney, but since Marvin Ellison took over, much of the news has been negative and not so positive. There have been numerous articles about the overall employee temperament being fleeting, about turnover increasing at the company because of a cutback in various different things, most notably a cutback of employees, a number of layoffs earlier this year. And the layoffs even made the news on CBS. Indeed, they were talking about the fact that there was only two weeks transition pay and no severance pay given to the workers that were laid off. They were offered to apply for new jobs, maybe at lower pay rates, while at the same time, Lowe's is in the middle of increasing their dividends to shareholders and increasing their share buyback. And I think that comes down to kind of the focus of the Ellison regime. There's a lot of lip service going on about how important the employees are. I will be anxious to see how much of that is on this particular earnings call and how much of it analysts kind of poke at. Because turnover can be a major issue for them. You look at a company like Home Depot, Home Depot has done so much to retain employees. And you're always going to have, no matter which retailer you are, you're always going to have a disgruntled retail employee telling some sort of story about you. But overall, the Home Depot employees that I've spoken with, that I've interacted with over the last 10 years, speak in positive terms about the company, especially the ongoing training at Home Depot, the opportunities to advance not hearing that from Lowe's employees right now. There have been so many articles, dozens of them, in fact, over the past couple of months about waning morale. And you just wonder how that's going to weigh on this earnings report. Now, shareholders might not care so much about it if dividends are going up and share buybacks continue and as long as the share prices keep going up. But if they don't, serious questions might have to be asked of Lowe's. So that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at is turnover going to be addressed on this earnings call? In what ways are they going to talk about some of the HR issues that have been exposed in the media over the past several months? And overall, what's the content of the call going to be like? Because the company, let's face it, under Ellison, it's not been that much different from what it was earlier, where they're still losing market share to Home Depot. My looking ahead has to do with Ollie's Bargain Outlet, a company that I recently bought shares in and a company that filed some news a couple days after I had bought these shares. So not the greatest of news. There's apparently a class action lawsuit that's been filed against all these bargain outlet holdings and it certain officers. So this has to do with shareholders that held shares between June 6, 2019 and August 28, 2019. They are basically alleging that all these bargain outlet and its executives failed to disclose via press releases and other security materials that the company had some deal flow issues that were not disclosed and that they were basically having to open stores that were partially unfilled with merchandise during this period of time. And I think this is interesting, Trent, because deal flow is one of the things, one of the terms that the company has coined over the recent years, talking about how they get merchandise and how they have to be able to be sure pretty pretty positive that they have enough merchandise coming in to their supply chain network to backfill all of the inventory in their new stores. And I think this really hasn't been a problem up to this point. They did mention in a couple earnings releases that they were having problems really trying to 
allocate enough merchandise to make sure that the stores were 100% merchandised. And I think this is interesting because while there were notes, they didn't explicitly say perhaps that there were maybe some issues that could affect the top and bottom lines for the company going forward. And I think that that's what this lawsuit is alleging. However, I will say that if you go into an Ollie's Bargain outlet, which I did for the first time when I visited Toledo, Ohio, the stores are packed with merchandise. So I don't know exactly what stores were affected, which stores weren't. But again, this circulates around the idea that newer stores were not fully stocked to the potential or at least what some people had expected them to be. And I think this is going to be interesting for the company going forward because this is a company that has seen a massive surge since becoming a publicly traded company. This is a company that has been all about store growth and all about same store sales growth with their Ollie's Rewards program. And so if you look at the company overall, this is a company that is pretty darn profitable. They have a net margin around 6.1% according to their last earnings call. That is very profitable for a retailer that is as niche as Ollie's. They keep their expenses low and keep their deal flow high. And that is sort of the concept surrounding this business and has been since its inception. Curious to see what this class action lawsuit does and what it does to my shares. Uh, since having announced this, the shares went from around $47 a share, hovering around $43, $44 a share from the end of last week. And I think that's a little bit concerning if you're a new shareholder like myself. However, if you had gotten in and purchased shares just a few years ago, you're doing very, very well for yourself even still. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. Big thanks to Sean Turner for joining us on this week's podcast as well. We'll be joined by a representative from CBRE to discuss some retail real estate next week on the show. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.